all this month, we've been talking about Methodism, United Methodism, which is a denomination, a flavor of Christianity, of which this church is a part. But we've been talking about it through this core idea of grace. If there's one thing you want to take away from the Christian story, if there's one thing you want to take away from the Methodist story, if there's one thing you want to take away from this church and from life, if you never get anything else, I hope it's grace. <laughs> I hope it's grace. That there are unearned gifts. The best definition of grace, I think. There are things we receive from the world and joys we experience in the world that we did not earn, that we did not work for, and that we never could. That God, through Jesus Christ, has offered to us and that are ours forever. <laughs> that we are loved. That we are not alone. That we are saved. That there is more. That we can grow. All of these things are the lessons of grace. Grace surrounds us and grace abounds. There is more grace in the world than we could ever possibly imagine, both in the bodies and lives that we have, the fact that our bones continue to keep us up and our blood continues to flow, in our communities and our friends, the fact that there is anyone to teach us, to hold us, to love us, to be there for us, and in what God has done, that God has declared, God has declared that we are God's that we are a part of God's family, that we are made right and we can be made righteous over time and never perfectly, <laughs> and that Jesus is with us and for us and has saved us. This is the call of grace. But it can be really hard, <laughs> really hard to figure out when it comes down to it, how is grace known? in the different parts of our lives, and particularly for a lot of us who've grown up in a particular culture of talking about faith and who we are and how we figure things out, how we find grace in the Bible, how we find grace in text, how we find grace in rules and should-bes and disciplines and has-to-bes. Where is grace in the ways that we form ourselves, and where is grace in the text that shapes us? Psalm 1 has been around for thousands of years, the scripture that we just read. And it says that when we are in relationship with the Bible, it will be like a stream of water that we are sitting upon. A, one that feeds us and refreshes us. One where we become a tree that is rooted. That it's an empowering and liberating experience to be in relationship with the Bible. That it's a freeing and grace-filled experience to be in relationship with the Bible. For so many of us, that has not been the case. That has not been how it feels. This book has been used in many ways against us or to confuse us. It's been used as a weapon, right? Oh, because of this one verse on this one page, you suck and you have to leave, right? Is basically prettier words, prettier way of saying it, but that's what people say. Or people treat this book as if it's, um, as if it's simple, as if it's easy, as if it's one thing. The scriptures are clear. Now I get to tell you what to do. <laughs> the scriptures are clear, and they just coincidentally happen to agree with me. Another way that it's been used that is less actively harmful, but still, I think, not quite right, not quite grace-filled, is when we talk about the Bible as if it is an advice column, as if it is something where you open it and it gives you the solution to the problem that you have in your life and that solution will be very clear and it will be very black and white 
and it'll be very here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, and if you just do it right, then you're fine, and it's all good, and there's one path, and there's one way, and there's one thing. And frankly, that way of treating the Bible opposes almost every story that is told within its pages. Abraham's not a guy who got a set of directions and then followed them correctly and it all worked out. <laughs> That's not the story of Abraham. <laughs> David's not a guy who got a set of directions, followed them all well, and then it all worked out. Even Jesus, right, is not a guy who got a set of directions, followed them all, and it all worked out. He faced some things, some challenging things. He was formed by scripture, and he preached them his whole life. And yet, his life had pain and struggle and suffering and ended in death. And yet, people didn't understand what he said, even when he explained it to them and told stories. The scriptures are holy, and they are beautiful, and they are important. But they aren't simple. And I think the way we've been encouraging one another to read them has not been one that trusts and believes in the grace of God. The way we've been taught to read the scriptures has been, let's figure out what the rules of grace are, what the box that grace fits inside is, so that then we can hold each other accountable to it. And I'm not sure that that's worked for any of us. And it's also not the only way that Christians have ever read the Bible. This way of saying... Um, the Bible is a literal historical depiction of what has happened is a very recent way of understanding what's going on here. Christians for thousands of years have thought of the Bible as full of mystical power, full of metaphor, full of analogy, um, full of places where we see our story in folktale and in language play. There are acrostics in the Bible that if you don't read Hebrew, you don't see. There's little word games that if you don't read Hebrew or Greek, you don't see. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a library and not a book, and it's a library that is as full of play and of um, seeing you where you are as it is full of things that really truly are direction and command. So I want to offer to you one way of understanding the Bible's role in our life, one way of understanding how we figure out how to live, how we figure out how to live together, that is deeply Methodist and that I think is really helpful. And we've talked about it in church before, but if you weren't there that day or if you've forgotten, I think people find this really helpful, so we're going to do it again. Yay. Yay. And it's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Quadrilateral. Everybody remember? Oh, people are remembering the square, the diamond. Yeah, okay. How we know God. Um, this can be found in the work of John Wesley, the founder of United Methodism, but it really came to fruition as a way of thinking under Albert Outler, a theologian of the mid-20th century. And he said, um, the scripture is essential, but we need help to figure out how to live with God. There are things in our modern life, right? There is no passage in the Bible on like how to have a spiritually healthy relationship with your cell phone. Uh -huh. uh, does that mean that that's something we never think about as Christians? No, it means we just got to like do a little work, right? We got to do a little interpretation. You have never met anyone, you have never met any Christian who wasn't doing interpretation when they taught the Bible. You've never met that person. Everybody's doing interpretation. Everybody's doing work. Everybody's connecting it to their life. There's no one who has the one true key 
um, who doesn't do interpretation when they read it. This is part of why we read it together, <laughs> to help figure it out together, to be challenged by the interpretation of others, to hone our metal, to get closer and closer to the truth of grace that lives at the heart of everything. And so this Wesleyan quadrilateral says that there are four things we want to take into account when we're figuring out how do I know God, how do I live like I know God, how do I live like grace is real. And one is scripture, and it is really important. I'm not a person who thinks that the scripture is just like any other book, right, or just has nice things to say. Um, it tells the story of God's people in a way that no other library does, in a way that has been given, us, given to us by God um, for reasons that are clearly special and different. And even if none of that stuff were true and all of that stuff is true, in our increasingly global and international church, the Bible plays a really important role in bringing us all together and helping us tell and learn the same story about what Jesus and God have done in our lives. The scripture is special and it is holy, but we need other stuff to figure out what it's trying to say to us. And one of those things here on the right is a reason, your brain. God didn't make a mistake when God gave you a brain. You're allowed to use it, right? Um, when you learn about language or when you learn about history or when you learn about what people's lives were actually like when they were writing some of this stuff, that is not a distraction from the meaning of the Bible. That is an enrichment of it. When you use your brain to reason things out and to figure things out, you're using a gift that God gave you to figure out how to live life, to figure out how to move forward. Tradition is at the bottom. This one is the one that I'm going to uh, take a guess and say many of our millennial urban village churchers are the most suspicious of, right? Like, where does tradition fit in to a healthily lived life, to a healthily lived religion, to a healthily lived discipleship and spiritual path? But tradition is actually really important, and we walk through life living into tradition, being formed by tradition in all kinds of ways that we don't even notice as it's happening. Um, the fact that our worship service opens with music and then we have a reading of the Holy Scripture, and then we have a response to that Scripture, and then we engage in Holy Communion, um, is not because we sat down and were like, blank slate, what's the most genius way to have a worship <laughs> service? And then we came up with it, right? Like, we're building on some things. We're building on some history. We're building on some things that people have figured out work really well for connecting us to God. Uh, we don't have to reinvent every wheel. Tradition is also a way of saying the ancestors, um, that the things that the people who have come before us have taught us about life and how it works, about God and how God reaches us, about Jesus and how Jesus saves us, that the things that our ancestors did, the things that they were resilient through, the things that they taught us through, are things that are worth maintaining, things that are worth remembering, things that are worth bringing through into the lives that we lead. Um, anybody seen Coco in the last year? Yeah, anybody wept openly whenever you saw Coco, right? So um, that is a simple child story of why remembering the past matters and living like you remember the past matters. <laughs> Tradition helps to form and shape us. And it also means you don't have to have every argument for the first time. Um, when I first became a Christian, I grew up non-religious and then converted, there was a sense in which I was like, ah, there's so much going on, I have to learn it all, you know? I have to, like, learn about all of the, the things about who Jesus is and all the things about how the Bible came to be and all the things about how you disciple yourself. And I do have to learn some of those things. I can't get away with learning none of those things. But there are also ways in which I can just rely on the conclusions that people before me have come to. And I don't have to start from scratch. I don't have to start with two plus two to go to my calculus class. So tradition is useful to us. Um, 
And experience is the fourth one. Experience is both personal experience and the fact that your life is a scripture, right? The, the twinges of conscience you feel, the particular gifts that you have, even the weaknesses that you have, those are a part of who God made. And so those are relevant to what God is doing in the world. Those help us figure out what God is doing in the world. But experience is also a way of saying, Holy Spirit, <laughs> that we believe that God did not stop moving. God did not stop speaking when the last page closed on John's vision of Revelation. That, that God continues to move in the world through the Holy Spirit. There are times when we hear, when we feel in our bodies, the Holy Spirit saying to us, here is something new I am creating. Here is something new I am doing in the world. Here is a place I would like you to go. Here is a path that I believe we can follow. Um, and we are not called to ignore those voices. <laughs> called to ignore um, that powerful, powerful movement of the Spirit. There are times when we can be wrong about what the Spirit is saying to us, and that's when we use reason and the scripture and tradition to check things. I remember um, when I first converted, I was in a, a very um, evangelical youth group that was like very beautiful in many ways, but we were all you know, kind of 16 and like on fire for our faith. And something that would happen on a pretty regular basis is that somebody would be like, um, that person I have a crush on, the Holy Spirit just told me I'm supposed to marry them, right? <laughs> um, which uh, they were not lying. They just really wanted a thing, right? We, they just like had a deep yearning in their heart. And the way that we sometimes interpret deep yearning in our hearts is that uh, everyone else wants those things and God wants those things too. So we can believe that the Spirit has said, and there are much you know, more sort of traumatic and worse versions of that, of people yes. saying that the Holy Spirit leads us to violence, and the whole, but this is one that I think we can all understand, that both the Holy Spirit does miracles and leads us places, and we can get um, misled and confused. Yes. And that's why we use the other three, right? We use scripture, we use tradition, we use reason to hold ourselves accountable. Or if we become too... Um, stuck in reason, right? Everything has to make sense. I leave no room in my life for mystery. I leave no room in my life for things that I don't already understand. Scripture and tradition and experience call us back to a sense of wonder. If we get too involved in only the scripture um, and saying the scripture is beautiful, but this is the only story God will ever tell, the book is closed, um, we leave out the seven billion people who are currently living out God's world, then the other three will call us back. This, I think, is a helpful way to think about your discipleship path. How are you drawing on all four of these God-ordained sources in your life of faith? What are the places where you learn about all of them? How do you hone your reason? How do you develop your understanding and reading of scripture? How do you encounter it on a daily basis? How are you letting the Holy Spirit into your life, and how are you not ignoring its voice when it comes if it says something that freaks you out? And how are you learning about your tradition so that you can live into the parts of the tradition that are life-giving, that are Christ-centered, that are good, and kind of abandon the parts of the tradition that are not great? <laughs> this is something I say whenever I do premarital counseling with a couple, is I say, think about your family of origin, the family you grew up in. What are the things you want to keep in the new family you're creating, and what are the things you maybe don't want to repeat, Ever. right? So, right, depending on our family situation, we may really, like, weigh the scales one way or another, but the same is true for our life of faith. What are the things from our tradition that are life-giving, that have borne fruit, that have been good, and what are the things that we maybe can leave on, leave on the side of the road to die a good death? 
this is how we can read the scripture with grace, I think, is when we read the scripture knowing that it is critically important, knowing that it is a story of God that God has told nowhere else and that it has the power to change us and we should be reading it, but that there are all of these other things that help us to figure out what it actually means and that help us to live into it in a way that is more grace in your life and not less grace in your life. So that's the scripture. Now we're going to talk about something a little harder, harder to find grace in, a different text, which is, uh, I left it right over here, I think. This, which some of you may recognize. This is a book of discipline. A book of discipline. I know, people really don't like that word, uh, (laughs) which I understand. But discipline comes from the same word as discipleship. This is a book that has been published every few years since the beginning of the United Methodist Church. The first one was very short, developed by 10 lay and ordained pastors, um, basically to say, what are the outer limits of what we think is okay to do? What are the things that are and aren't okay to say? What are the things that are and aren't okay to do as we lead our lives in ministry that will most contribute to good discipleship, which just really means getting more intimate with God, getting more loving of God and loving of the people around you, living a life that you would be proud to be lived as we go forward. And because of many people's experience with traumatic religious communities, with authoritarian human communities, most people's first response to this is ick gross, right? Why rules? Why write them down? Why not let people be who they are? But one thing that's important is that the earliest... um, versions of the Book of Discipline, one of the things they held to in the 18th century was that it was not Christian for pastors or Christians to own slaves or to contribute contribute to the enslavement of people, right? That the enslavement of people was seen as one of the greatest sins against God and sins against who Jesus was that was happening in the world, and we were demanded as Christians to draw a line, (laughs) which for English white people... um, meant exempting themselves from certain parts of culture and from certain parts of life. Uh, A lot of people, we always have juice for our communion and not alcohol. Um, For us, that is being in relationship with people who uh, many of us uh, have experienced addiction to alcohol and addiction to drugs. But from day one, the United Methodist Church has been a no-alcohol church because at that time, you could not get liquor without it having been made by enslaved people in the Caribbean. Alcohol was the main, yeah. <laughs> people really like that fact. <laughs> um, yeah, people were anti-alcohol because to be anti-alcohol was the best boycott you could have against slavery. And so there's a history of these rules, right, not just being places of harm, of destruction, of I get to tell you what to do, but sometimes Discipline is a way to call us back to our scripture, to our tradition, to our experience, to our reason, to call us back to more mercy, to more love, to more grace, to more justice. And the hard part is figuring which time it is which (laughs) and how how to live into accountability in a way that is grace-filled. This is something um, that I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately. Um, The way that the Book of Discipline has been used the last several years in the United Methodist Church especially has most frequently been to call up on charges, pastors who either are gay or lesbian or trans or bi, or who have married same-sex couples, um, and calling them into 
basically like church courts and they go through trials and they figure out whether they're going to get to stay pastors. And all of that has struck me as so incredibly destructive to grace, so incredibly destructive to the people who God made, so incredibly destructive to our community. I had in my heart written off the idea of accountability, of text, of um, any sense of that. And then a couple weeks ago, um, when the true nature of the family separation policy became clear, Jeff Sessions, who's the Attorney General of the United States, is a lifelong member of the United Methodist Church and taught Sunday school at his home United Methodist Church in Alabama. And over 600 United Methodists signed a letter calling him into disciplinary account on charges of child abuse because the Book of Discipline says that no United Methodist shall commit child abuse, which again seems like one of those like pretty basic, we can get on board with that. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was really interesting to me to read the letter because even when I heard about it, I was still, I deeply and profoundly disagreed with what he was doing. I thought it was against the will of God. It was something that I was protesting on the street. And I still didn't know if calling someone into a church disciplinary process could ever be ethical or right. I mean, I was still suspicious of it um, because it just seemed to me that the whole process was so um, stained by the ways in which we've used it to hurt each other sure, rather sure. than to love each other. And then I read the letter. And the letter says something in really interesting, which is that what it seeks is not punishment. What it seeks is a change in behavior. <laughs> what it seeks is a change in behavior, and what it seeks is a number of communal meetings where he would be brought into relationship with his United, fellow United Methodists who are impacted by this, brought into relationship with immigrants, um, and that that would change his behavior, and he would be held accountable to change his behavior. And it says a really interesting thing, which is, we are yours and you are ours. We are yours and you are ours. That by being a part of a church, we take responsibility for each other. Not in the harmful way of, I take responsibility for your life of discipleship even more than my own, and I'm going to get to ignore myself by pointing out all the nonsense you're doing, right? That's the harmful version most of us have figured out. But we are yours and you are mine. The church can actually change us. <laughs> Jesus Christ can actually change us. When we know Jesus, we want to be different. We want to be different. We want to turn a different direction. And this is where this confusion we often have, if grace is real, what does it mean um, to do things? Because we're not doing them to get love. We're not doing them to get salvation. We get love no matter what, right? We get God no matter what. The way to think about it is, if the church is truly formed by Christ, if the church was born out of this kind of grace, experiencing that kind of grace would in an ideal world make us all the kind of people who want everyone to experience that kind of grace and to do whatever is needed to make a world where everyone feels that kind of love and has that kind of holding and has that kind of safety. So this is actually one where I don't have the answer yet, but I want to invite us to think about it as a church, to be studying restorative justice models, to be thinking about what are the ways that we could form a world where there is some sense of accountability. There is some sense that there are things that are right and things that are wrong, and we have a responsibility for each other, but that is not based on punishment and pain and revenge. <laughs> because punishment and pain and revenge have caused too much destruction. What does it mean to hold one another accountable 
with grace, with love, from grace, from love, instead of in a way that makes all the grace feel like it never happened. And until we figure that out, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to err on the side of more grace and more looseness. Fewer trials, fewer processes, more conversations, and more care. But I think this is the call before us as Christians in this time, is to figure out what does it mean to help one another live into the grace that we have been offered with grace, but also believing um, that grace requires steps and actions on all of us. So we're going to figure that out together. We're going to continue to talk about that. We're going to be continuing to interpret the Bible with all of us, with our scripture, our experience, our tradition, and our reason, and we're going to do it together.